I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning or your device. If you do, open them up to the book of 2 Kings, 2 Kings 25. That's way on back in the uh, Old Testament, page number 542 in my Bible. I don't know where it is in yours, but uh, 2 Kings 25, as we have our fourth Sunday of Advent, Advent, uh, the Latin word for the arrival of a notable person or thing or idea. Uh, we, always, we observe it the four Sundays prior to Christmas Day. And I heard it said a really neat way this last week as I was listening to someone else. Uh, they said that Advent, this time, this focus helps us orient our lives to the true story of the world. The true story of the world. So, you know, we know that our life in this world, you know, it's, it's a story. There's a story to it, who we are, where we've been, where we're going, what's going on. There's a story to that. And we're so uh, enraptured by stories, right? We were watching a movie just last night, the story of a young man's life, going through college and trying to play football and take care of his younger brother because their mother uh, had all sorts of issues. And so it was a story uh, that, that just spoke to you about about life. And we know that there are uh, competing narratives uh, for what the true story is, right? The true story of life, the true story of the world, and, and where, where our lives fit into that. Now, thankfully, Scripture teaches us uh, the truth, teaches us the true story of the world, the what's really going on. So today I want to share with you uh, a special encouragement, even from uh, the Old Testament, even from Second Kings, uh, here on, the, on this last Sunday of Advent as we get ready uh, to celebrate Christmas later this week. But I want to give you a quick rundown of what's been going on up until this point. It's stuff you know, but it won't take very long to, to cover it. We know that uh, Scripture begins, the story of our world begins with creation, right? God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was in it, and He saw that it was good, and He created uh, mankind, man and, male and female. He created them. And, and he created them to abide in this garden, uh, this, this special place where his presence could uh, live with us. And then we could image him to the creation. We could exercise his authority over creation and see it continue to grow and expand and be blessed. Amen. And then we know that that was broken. That relationship, that communion in the garden was broken and fractured. Uh, by sin, it says that uh, mankind was driven out of the garden, pushed out, exiled east of the Garden of Eden, removed from that fellowship because of sin. And then we see in the next few chapters of the book of Genesis how sin and exile just start to spiral into death and destruction and all sorts of evil. And then in chapter 12 and chapter, through chapter 15 of Genesis, we see God say into this chaos, I'm going to call out something out of nothing. He calls out a man named Abram and says, I'm going to create in you a, a, a people, a special people for, for my own part of this story. I'm going to create a group of people out of where a group of people didn't exist. And he tells him in you 
and what will come out of you. All the nations of the world are going to be blessed. He says, I'm going to do this. You're not going to do it. I'm going to do this. And he takes and he creates a family out of nothing. It was a man and a woman who were without children. And God gave them children and started uh, the family that we know were, were, were the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's name changed to Israel. And, and he created a people. Now, the problem was they were people just like us. They had problems just like we have problems. They were a mess, just like we're a mess. And so it, 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 it's moving on, but yet there's still all kinds of issues. It's obviously not where it, where it should be, and they ended up, uh, because of some of those things going on, in Egypt as slaves. They didn't start there as slaves, but they ended up there as slaves, enslaved to an evil Pharaoh who treated them unfairly, unkindly, treated them awful. And, and so as they're there, they begin to wonder, are we ever going to see the promise of God fulfilled? God promised that we would dwell in this land, that we would feed on his faithfulness, uh, that we would have victory in him. And here we are exiled in Egypt and enslaved. And then God sent Moses. The people were delivered out of Egypt miraculously. A whole nation defeated without anyone ever picking up a sword. Israel didn't have an army. There was no fight. God did it. He won the fight. And then they left out again under miraculous circumstances, but they left out into the wilderness. And again, they're still kind of a mess. There's so much grumbling and complaining. They're like, can we trust God to, to continue to do what he said he would do? Can we trust Moses? And so they're going round and round in the wilderness until they finally get to the land that was promised, right? The land of Canaan, land flowing with milk and honey. And they found out there were all kinds of other people there uh, that didn't want to give up that land. So they had to fight and God gave them the victory and they won the land that he had promised. And so there starts to be some development there of, okay, maybe it's finally happening. We have the land now. This is moving in the right direction. And we know that God gave them uh, the, the law in the wilderness and set up uh, the priesthood that would be a mediator between the presence of God and the people and, and set up order out of that chaos, teaching them how to worship him the right way. And then his presence was dwelling among them in the tabernacle, right? So they have the land, they have the presence they say, okay, God is with us. We're in the land. Now they said, what, what do we need? And they said, we need a king. We want a king. We want a king like the other nations. So when it comes time to fight, we've got a king that will stand up for us and fight for us and, and kind of be that, that, that main person that we look to as far as our direction. And we know that they had King Saul, and he was a king of their choosing, uh, even though you know, God, said, God said, I will give you what you're asking for, and you'll see why it doesn't. Work, But then following after King Saul was King David and King David was a victorious king and won many battles and there was safety in the land and there was peace and everything seemed right. They're in the land. The presence of God is dwelling among them. The king uh, that God chose is on the throne. They, they've had victory. And David, in all of this, he looks at all of this and he says, you know, I think it's, ha I think it's happened, God. I think, I think we're there. He said, what I would like to do is build you a house. You know, you're living in the tabernacle. It's still like a tent. I'm living in a palace. I feel like that's not right. You should live in a temple. There should be a temple for you to live in. 
And then we, we have there in Samuel what we call the, the Davidic covenant where God talked to David. And he said, I appreciate that. I appreciate you wanting to, to do that. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But, uh, you know, you, you're not going to be the one to build me a temple, but one will come from your line that will reign forever and will build me a temple that will last forever. Right. And, and so they, they think that this is being fulfilled when Solomon comes along. It's a son of David. The temple is built. The presence of God filled the temple. And it's like we're here. It's happening. This is the kingdom of God coming. This is what was promised, except there was still a problem. They were still people just like you and me. And the mess just continued. They would be faithful and then they would be rebellious. They would be righteous and then there would be a whole generation of just evil and God denying and paganism and idolatry because the hearts of the men and the women were still unredeemed. And so the kings would come after Solomon. More kings came and you can read through it. It's like one king after another. Most of them were a mess. Most of them did terrible things. Every once in a while, there would be one that would come up and go, I'm pretty sure we're not supposed to be living like this. I'm pretty sure that God said to do things a different way. And they would restore everything. They would remove the paganism and the idolatry. And they would restore right worship to Jehovah God. But they were few and far between and because of this, number one, the, the, the nation was uh, not even unified. There was Israel and there was Judah and each of them would have their own king. But because of the wickedness, the selfishness and the sinfulness, they would lose their identity of who they were, the special people that God had called unto himself, but they would stop following him. And so because of that, this idea of exile came back up because God, because they were sinful and unrighteous and rebellious, losing their identity. He gave them over to enemy nations, Egypt and Babylon, started attacking them, having influence over them. And, and, and that's almost where we're going to pick up here. We're going to start to get down into some specifics. In, in Judah, there was a king named Josiah. And he came to power at a time where there was a lot of wickedness in the land. The people weren't following God. They weren't honoring God. And then they found, like in an old storage room, the book of the law. And somebody brought it out and said, hey, we found this. It would be like if the Bible didn't, you know, in America, there was no Bible and somebody just found one. and started reading. They were like, oh, my gosh, we're doing this wrong. And Josiah said, we're going to straighten this up. And so he restored righteousness to the nation, right? Worship re reinstated the Passover so that they could start to remember where God had brought them from. But it only last, so, lasted so long because then his sons came along and his son Jehoaz, which there's a lot of names in here that are going to be fun for me to say. Uh, I know Tyler, Hallie, if you're watching, you're expecting a lot of boy names. Jehoaz, I don't know. You may like that one. Uh, Josiah might be better, but Jehoaz, you never know. There's some other J names coming up. Uh, so Josiah, Egypt attacked while he was the king, and they killed him. And then Egypt had taken over, and they said, we're going to install Josiah's son, Jehoaz, as king, but he's going to do what we say. 
Uh, but that didn't go well. He didn't do what they said for very long, and so they killed him and installed his brother, the other son of Josiah. His name was Jehoiakim. And Egypt was controlling the nation of Israel. It, they, they were under the influence of the ungodly. And then, while this is going on, Babylon comes in and attacks. Jehoiakim's the king. He's honoring Egypt uh, as much as he can and doing what they say. But Babylon attacks during the reign of Jehoiakim, and that's in verse 24, and makes him their vassal. All right, now you don't serve Egypt. You serve us. So they're, they're torn back and forth between Egypt and Babylon, one godless nation to another. Because Babylon had showed up. Babylon was bigger, tougher than Egypt. Egypt said, you know what, we're, we're going to let you have them. We're, we're not even going to come out and fight that fight. And so Babylon is ruling. Even though there's a king of Judah on the throne, Babylon is the one that's ruling. And then after Jehoiakim died, his son Jehoiakim was made the king. He became the king at the age of 18. He ruled for three months. And even in those three months, he couldn't do right. Even in those three months, it said he did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the king of Babylon himself, Nebuchadnezzar, came to Jerusalem and said, you were supposed to do what I told you to do. You didn't. I'm taking you and all of your family back with me. You're my prisoner. You are coming back. I'm going to deport you to Babylon. And then the king of Babylon put up um, Zedekiah as the king. It was Jehoiakim's uncle. So he wasn't even the rightful king. But Babylon had put him in there. They also carried off 10,000 others as captives. They carried out all those who could produce. Anybody who could do something productive, they took them with them. They took all the treasure out of the temple. They took it with them. They took all the soldiers, all the blacksmiths, all the metal workers. Why? Because they didn't want anybody to fight against them. They didn't want anybody to fight against them. And again, they put Jehoiakim's uncle in his place. Zedekiah wasn't rightful, but it was, that's what Babylon did. And Zedekiah, not surprisingly, did evil in the sight of the Lord. It said he ruled for 21 years. Or he was 21 years old and he, he ruled as king for, for nine years. And sin, again, it just keeps coming up. Sin keeps coming up, keeps ruling the hearts of the people. And it again brought exile because Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon. Babylon didn't like that. I know what you're thinking. Merry Christmas, right? This is the best Christmas story ever. Hold on. Just hold on. It's going to get worse before it gets better, but I, I, hang in there. Hang in there. But that gets us to where I want to read today in 2 Kings 25. You see kind of why we wanted to, to show what's going on before we get there. But it is going to get worse before it gets better. In 25, starting in verse 1, it says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign... Remember, he was put into place by Nebuchadnezzar. On the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon advanced against Jerusalem with his entire army. They laid siege to the city and built a siege wall against it all around. The city was under siege until Zedekiah's eleventh year. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that the common people had no food. Then the city was broken into and all the warriors fled at night by way of the city gate between the two walls near the king's garden. Even though the Chaldeans surrounded the city, that's the Babylonians. As the king made his way along the route to the Arabah, the Chaldean army pursued him and overtook him 
in the plains of Jericho. Zedekiah, he was the one that was running. The Babylonians caught him. Zedekiah's entire family left him and scattered. They seized the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered Zedekiah's sons before his eyes. Finally, the king of Babylon blinded Zedekiah, bound him in bronze chains, and took him to Babylon. On the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, that's a tough one, the captain of the guards, a servant of the king of Babylon, entered Jerusalem. He burned the Lord's temple. He burned the king's palace. And he burned all the houses of Jerusalem. He burned down all of the great houses. The whole Chaldean army with the captain of the guards tore down the walls surrounding Jerusalem. The captain of the guard deported the rest of the people who remained in the city. The deserters who had defected to the king of Babylon and the rest of the population. But the captain of the guards left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and farmers. So you see how far we've fallen from when David was ruling in Jerusalem. They come in, they capture Zedekiah, the king that they, the false king, the one that they had put into place. They slaughter his family because they didn't want anyone to say, oh, he's the king, we're going to follow him. They blind Zedekiah and take him as a prisoner. And then the captain of the Babylonian guard comes in, burns and destroys the temple, burns and destroys the king's palace, burns and destroys the great houses of Jerusalem, tore down the walls of the city. And that's a big deal. We don't think about it. But in, that, in those days, that was your security. That was your perimeter. That was your protection and your safety. So a city without walls was not a city because it was completely vulnerable to anyone's attack. They, they tore down the walls, the temples destroyed, and they deported the people once again to the east, exiled into Babylon. So imagine being in that group, seeing the temple of God, where God's presence had dwelled, where you had gone to meet him, to, to understand him, to worship him. It's in ruins on the ground, smoking rubble. Only the poorest folks, it says, were left there to tend the vines and the gardens. Because even the Babylonians said, there's still value here. There's going to be crops come from here. We'll leave some of these folks here. They can eat off of the food, and then they'll turn everything over to us. That's how far they had fallen. And that's another example of sin and rebellion will result in exile. Exile from your appointed place from your appointed position, sin will result in exile. And that exile will always bring pain and longing and despair. It's the thought of, will we ever have peace again? That exile, I talked about it last week. Our misery is that we know God but that we can't reach him. In our sinfulness, we can't reach him. So to know that there's a home that we should be in, but we can't be there, that's the pain and the misery of exile. And so they thought what we would think, will it always be this way? 
Will we always be in exile? Are the promises of God all for nothing now? Because again, everything was rolling well with David. And then it went down from there and further down to nothing. Everything is burned and destroyed. Everything they thought was going to protect them and keep them safe has been destroyed. Will it always be this way? Will we always be in exile? Is there any hope? They had lost the temple. That was where the presence of God had dwelled. The presence of God isn't among them. It was different for them than it is for us. That was where the presence of God dwelt. It's gone. The king, gone. God's dwelling place with them in the temple. God's authority and protection in the king. Those are gone. And the promised land, gone. We're shipped off to Babylon. That's a bad situation. How could they find hope? Where in the world in all of that could they find hope? And again, we we don't have to talk too much about what that exile feeling is. I don't have to describe it to us because we all know what I'm talking about, right? To know you're supposed to be somewhere and you can't get there. Not just that, but you're far from there. Develops into a hungry uh, feeling even for hope. And, and whether it's our sin, our rebellion that ends us in exile, or just the pain of living in a world where God is dishonored brings about the pain of exile, the feeling of exile. Because even as a Christian, we know there's a home where we're supposed to be forever, and where we are isn't like that. And all of the things that make it different hurt us and injure us, and we go, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. And I, Can God be trusted? Will I get home? And again, while they were in this position because of their own sin and rebellion, they had they had done all the wrong. They they deserved what was happening because God told them, if you forget me and you don't honor me and you don't live for me, this is what's going to happen to you in the land. They knew better and still did Wrong. So they were in this situation because of their own rebellion and their own sin. And yet God was still working. He hadn't forgotten about them. He hadn't forgotten about the promises that he had made. He would bring them hope in exile and he would do it in the same way that he brings us hope today. He would bring them hope in exile through the life of the king. Through the life of the king. Let me let me just for, for real quick. Why? Was the life of the king important to them? Like I said, number one, there was security in that. This is the person who is called by God to protect us, preserve us, our nation. He's the one that leads the army out to fight for us, to defend us. And it also meant that the promise of God was still intact. If the king was alive of the line of David, then the promises of God that had to do with the king that would come, that would rule in peace forever, that still exists. And so you have Psalms like Psalm 61 where where, where they said, Lord, add days to the king's life. May his years span generations. May he sit enthroned before God forever because they knew that there was worth in the life of the king and there was hope in the life of the king. It's where where you have those phrases, long live the king, because especially in that time, like the prophets, like the priests, the king was a mediator between God and the people. It was a special part of the relationship. So long live the king means that means the kingdom will endure. If the king is alive, then the kingdom is still intact. 
It's not been destroyed. The kingdom continues and the promise of God continues. And so the people of Israel and Judah had seen King Jehoiakim carried into captivity. Again, he had only been king for three months. And he didn't even do good in those three months. But he was the rightful king of Judah. And then he was replaced by Zedekiah, whose family was snuffed out. He was blinded. He was shamed. He was imprisoned. And so they're looking at this going, Jehoiakim's gone. He's been gone for years. We haven't heard anything of him. Zedekiah, he's gone now. All of his family line, gone. There's nothing good coming out of that. The temple's been destroyed. The king's palace destroyed. Walls torn down and we're into exile. So what hope was there to be found? The question is, God, will this pain stop? Will this exile end? Will these wrongs be put to right? Have you forgotten about us? Will we ever be back at home with you? And again, we know how that feels. We know how that, that, that the pain of exile feels. Even the song we sang today, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God Appears. We know how that feels. So where would they find comfort? They would find it in the life of the king. In chapter 25, I want you to jump down to verse 27. I won't make you read any more of the bad. I want to get you down to the good. Verse 27, as it finishes out the book of, this, of 2 Kings. I'm going to read it and then we'll talk about it. It says, on the 27th day of the 12th month of the 37th year. Of the exile of Judah's king, Jehoiakim, in the year of evil Merodach, became king of Babylon. He pardoned King Jehoiakim of Judah and released him from prison. He spoke kindly to him and set his throne over the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim changed his prison clothes and he dined regularly in the presence of the king of Babylon for the rest of his life. As for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king of Babylon, a portion for each day for the rest of his life. So King Jehoiakim, he's still in captivity in Babylon, and it says in the 37th year of his exile, the 37th year of King Jehoiakim being imprisoned in Babylon. See, we don't know anything about patience. We don't know anything about long suffering. 37 years. I just turned 38. That's a long time to be in captivity, right? In the 37th year, and again, 20 years after, 28 years after the temple was destroyed. Because remember, he got taken away first. The king was taken away first. The other guy was in there for nine years before the temple was destroyed. But it's been 28 years since the temple was destroyed. And, and Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, a new leader comes to power. And his name is Evil Merodach. You wouldn't expect him to do anything good, but his name is Evil Merodach. Not one I would recommend. But he releases Jehoiakim from prison, pardons him, speaks kindly of him, gives him a position above all the other kings that were there with him in Babylon. Because what Babylon would do when they would conquer somewhere, they would take that king like, all right, you belong to us now. This is going to prove to people from forever that you serve us. And so he puts him above all of the other captive kings, gave him royal clothes, gave him a seat at the table. And gave him a regular allowance for all of his daily needs for the rest of his life. And we just think, hey, that's a cool part 
of the story. But to the people who were looking for the line of the king, this would have been hope. The king is alive. He's no longer in captivity. The line of the king is not broken. God's promise is still intact. What he had told David that one would come from his line that would bring us peace and rule for forever, that is still alive because the king is still alive. Now, this part of Scripture, where it fits in the historical story, the timeline of the Old Testament, this is almost at the end. I know you're looking, go, well, there's a bunch of books after this. You know, we can talk about how everything's put together and how it fits. But I need you to know that the Old Testament is not chronological in the way the books are put together. This would happen almost at the end of the timeline of the Old Testament. You would have Nehemiah and Ezra go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and reset the gates and rebuild the temple. But what you didn't have was a king ruling in Jerusalem, the rightful king ruling in Jerusalem. Again, the presence of God, even though the temple was rebuilt, the presence of God didn't return in the manifestation that it had been there before. So this is towards the end. Again, you would see the prophetic books. All of that is talking about this time. The only thing left to come is the exiles returning to Jerusalem and rebuilding. But again, the king wasn't on the throne. The presence wasn't in the temple. Now there were, you're like, well, what about King Herod? King Herod was put into place by the Romans. And so he, he, he was fake and false and not a true king of Israel or Judah. But yet the line of the king continued because Jehoiakim was alive. The line of the king continued. And so, so the question remained, will the king return? Will God's presence dwell with us? They found hope there, but there's still some questions, right? And, and I want to show you. What scripture says, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 1. Because again, this would be at about the end of the story of the Old Testament as we lead up to the New Testament. We know there was a period there of a few hundred years where no prophet spoke, nothing happened until John the Baptist showed up. But in Matthew 1, it gives us the genealogy of Jesus Christ and it calls him the son of David the son of Abraham. And I won't read the whole genealogy to you. We talked a little bit about it a few Wednesday nights ago in our Bible study. But I want you to look at Matthew 1 and verse, we'll start in verse 10. It says, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. Remember Josiah? We talked about him. And it said, Josiah fathered Jeconia, which is the Greek name for Jehoiakim. And his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. And so the line of kings, it goes all the way down from the patriarchs into the into King David and on down the line of kings from there to get us to verse 11. And it says Jehoiakim is in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I want you to know that the the, the name Jehoiakim means Jehovah establishes. Jehovah establishes. So the promised king, whose kingdom would have no end, he's still coming through this line because of what God established. Now, now look at the rest of these names. 
After the exile to Babylon, Jeconia or Jehoiakim fathered Shealtel. Shealtel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim, who fathered Azor, who fathered Zadok, who fathered Akim, who fathered Eliud, who fathered Eliezer, who fathered Matan, who fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. Again, the line of the king continued, just like God said that it would, through the unlikely link of Jehoiakim, who God delivered out of captivity, through the kindness of a king who shouldn't have been kind to him, so that the promise that the king whose kingdom would never end would still be intact. And I told you, Jehoiakim's name means Jehovah establishes. I looked up the other names, the ones I just read, right? She'll tell Zerubbabel, Abiud, all of those. I looked up what their name means all the way up to Jesus. And I want to read it to you, you know, because we talked about this too on Wednesday night. Names have a meaning and it's just so interesting to see how this lines up. I went back a, a, a few people. To catch us up, but but the, the names start with I have asked God, born in Babylon, my father of majesty, raising up by God, helper, just, the Lord will establish. God praise him, help of God, gift, supplanter, may he increase. Jehovah is salvation. So you see the beautiful story even there in the names of I've asked God when I was born in Babylon, my father of majesty, raising up by God, a helper who's just the Lord will establish. God praise him. Help of God. Gift who will be the supplanter, the heel grabber. That's what Jacob means. The supplanter, the one who will remove what's there and be the heir. May he increase. Joseph, Jehovah is salvation. Jesus. And so when we have them saying things like, oh, king, live forever, what they mean is your reign is righteous and good, and I hope it never ends. I hope it endures. I hope your kingdom endures because there's hope for me in the life of the king. Even though they were saying it about regular men whose life would have an end, regular men whose hearts were broken and sometimes bent the wrong direction, they knew that the kingdom enduring meant that the promises were Intact, And then in verse 16 of Matthew 1, the promised son of David, whose kingdom would have no end, had come. And that gives us hope, just like it gave them hope when the king was in exile. The life of the king, the fact that the kingdom would endure, gave them hope. Our king, Jesus Christ, Jehovah's salvation said, this is the reason I was born. This is the reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth, that God keeps His promises. And there is hope to those who are in exile, who are lost in sin, lost in shame, who have ingrained in them that old memory that there's a home place that they're not living in. They know wrong is wrong, but they're not able to reach and touch the right. 
those in exile find hope in the life of the king. Even when we've repented of our sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ, we still live in a world of pain and we live in a world of problems, right? We know we're on our way home, but we know there's still a sense of exile. I'm not where I'm supposed to be yet. I'm not like I'm supposed to be yet. I'm headed that direction, but the tension there of wanting to be at home and yet being here is still very real. One of the verses that people like to quote about uh, Christians about the church comes from uh, Peter when he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own special people. We love that one, don't we? It's like, yes, we're special people. A couple verses after that, he also said, dear friends, you are strangers and exiles. He's like, you're on your way somewhere, but you're not at home. And there's going to be a feeling of not belonging where you are and of wanting to be where you should be. The hope of the home we're heading to is there, but the fullness of it isn't yet, right? And we know that. We feel that. God, I'm dealing with things now that I know I'm not going to have to deal with when I get home. God, I'm dealing with feelings and thoughts and emotions now that I know I'm not going to have to deal with when I get home. I'm dealing with situations now and evil now and darkness in the world that I know I'm not going to have to deal with when I get home. And there's that feeling of exile. Because we have the hope of the home we're heading to, that he's going to bring us into the land that he promised. But there's that tension. And so what is it that we hold on to in those times when the feeling of exile is very strong? The feeling of being in the wrong place is very strong. The feeling like we're not going to be able to get there. Where is our hope? It's the same place their hope was. The king is alive. God keeps his promises and this exile won't last forever. As long as the king lived, the people had hope. That was what they had in Jehoiakim. He was just a dude. But he was evidence that the promise of God was still intact. So how much more for us who have King Jesus, who's risen from the dead, never to die again, how much more hope can we find in him than they found in Jehoiakim? Because he's the king that took us out of prison. Jehoiakim had to be brought out of prison. King Jesus is the one who took us out of prison, who pardoned us, who let us take off our jail clothes and put on his clothes who gave us an allowance for every day. It said the king of Babylon gave Jehoiakim an allowance. So whatever he needed each day was taken care of. That's what we have in Jesus. He gives us what we need each day. In our darkest hour, and we have them. We have those dark nights. We have those dark times. We have those times where our, our heart and our mind and our body are so stressed and taxed from living in a world exiled still. Even though our heart is with him, the rest of us is here having to deal with that in those darkest hours. There is hope because Christ is risen. The king is alive and the kingdom's promise is sure and certain as his life is. 
long live the king. Amen. We're riding with King Jesus. We don't have to, we don't have to just depend on King Jehoiakim. They were dependent on kings that were flawed and unfaithful and rebellious and sinful, but they still had hope in the life of the king because they knew that God could bring out of nothing. You know, because that's what Jehoiakim was. He was, he was pretty much nothing. He ruled for three months and didn't do well. God could bring out of nothing something because that's what he promised to do. We sing that one song, Come Thou Rod of Jesse, Bring. That's in the scripture. It's talking about Jesus coming up a shoot out of dry ground. Like we thought this plant was dead. We thought it was just a stump there. We thought nothing would ever grow here again. And all of a sudden, the life of the king explodes forth. Amen. That's what we can think about. That's what we can remember this Christmas. This is the reason he came, to testify of the truth. And in those times where we don't have hope in what's going on, where we look for verification everywhere else, it's like none of this is looking like it should. Just like for them, the temple is in ruins. The king's palace is burned down. All the great houses are destroyed. Everybody's gone. It's just me here. What can I hope in? But they had hope because the king was alive. And even in we're, when we're in those darkest moments, those darkest hours, we can have hope because the king is alive. And thankfully, he doesn't leave us there. He meets us where we are. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand up with me as we get ready to go today. This Christmas, we can remember that he came just like he promised. And because he came like he promised and he's alive forevermore, he'll come back just like he promised to put everything that's still wrong to put it to complete right. And we will live in the fullness of his promise. It will become reality. We have hope in the life of the king. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for King Jesus. That we don't have to suffer under flawed men as our ultimate king. But we live in the service of King Jesus. I thank you that he came and won us, fought the battle for us from our master, sin and death. Destroyed them on our behalf. And I thank you that we have the first fruits of that victory on the inside of us. We know you. And we're known by you and we can walk with you and become more like you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I thank you that you don't leave us like we were, that we may be, like Peter said, strangers and exiles in the land, but we are on our way home. We are passing through. And I thank you that as we're moving, we can grab others to bring them along with us. The same hope that we found in the life of the king, we can introduce them to him and we can see the light come on in their heart and in their eyes eyes as they see you for who you are, the one that was promised from ancient days to come and make the wrong things right. I thank you for the hope that we find in the life of the king, that it started in that manger in Bethlehem so many years ago, and the life of the king blesses us still today and will forevermore. That this is the joy that comes to the world. Christ came. We love you and we thank you. Lord, as we get ready to go today, 
I thank you that you lead us out in peace and unity together with each other. Lord, bless this time that we've had together. Bless those who are out from us today. Lord, where they are, I thank you that you are not distant. I thank you, Lord, that any difficulties, any troubles, any trials that we're encountering, we can, even in the midst of them, find hope in the life of the king, find comfort in the life of the king. As they did when the temple lay burned and the walls of Jerusalem were on the ground. When there was no reason to hope, they had hope in the life of the king. They knew your work was not done and that you would restore them. And we thank you for that. We thank you that in those dark times, you are our light. As it says in the book of the prophet Micah, though I sit in darkness, don't rejoice over me, mine enemy. The Lord will shine a light on me. I thank you that you don't leave us where we are, but you are taking us somewhere. Thank you that we are riding with King Jesus. God, protect your people as we go. Keep us safe. Prepare our hearts for our ministry today at Fort Lookout. And God, I thank you that as we approach this holiday, that we'll handle it rightly and that we will worship you in it. God, that we'll get all the good and none of the other things that would try to pop up, the selfishness, the frustration, all the little things of self that would try to creep in. I thank you that you hold those back for our benefit and that we resist those temptations in Jesus' name. I thank you that you'll bring us safely back together. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.